0: Welcome to a new sponsor, A.N. Weber Incorporated. Now in their 76th year, Weber has offices in Kankakee, Illinois, Nashville, Tennessee, El Paso, Texas, and Chandler, Arizona. Whether you're looking for company equipment to haul dry van or flatbed freight, or logistics services for all types of freight, or even a career in driving, maintenance, or sales, call Mark Tedford at 815-939-2235. You can apply online at anweber.com. Weber has immediate openings for drivers in all areas and mechanical technicians in Kankakee, Illinois and El Paso, Texas. Weber is also looking for logistic agents across the country. Again, call Mark Tedford at 815-939-2235 or apply online at anweber.com. Hi right, folks, and welcome to a special Christmas podcast edition of Weber's Whipping Post. I'm the jolly old elf known as Weber, and I'm delighted you turned in to listen. I've got a little cold right now, so you'll have to just bear with me through this. This podcast, my 45th, will be different from past podcasts. It's called A Christmas Story, A Nutcracker, A Mouse, and a Ballet. I have cobbled together some interesting items about everyone's favorite holiday. Hopefully, you'll like this so much, you'll keep it and bring it back out in future Christmases. Before I begin, let's pay a few bills. This episode comes to you from the George Ryan Jr. Insurance Group. Everybody needs insurance, so why not buy from the great folks at George Ryan Jr. Insurance who supports programs like mine? So please go ahead and give George a call at 815 815- Nine three six zero zero seven five. That's 815 Or look them up on their website and save on insurance at grinsure.com. George and his staff would like to wish all of you warm holiday greetings. As everyone knows, Christmas, which is the shortened word for Christ's Mass, is the annual festival commemorating the birth of Jesus Christ. It has been a federal holiday since 1870 when President Ulysses S. Grant signed it into law. Did you know that December 25th is probably not the true birthday of our Lord and Savior? Incredibly, the Bible never tells us what day he was born. One would have thought that might have been an important event to let us know about. It is celebrated on the 25th because that was the day Pope Julius I chose for it, probably to overshadow a pagan festival called Saturnalia, which also happened to be that very same day. In fact, Jesus was probably born in the spring, about April, when shepherds would actually be herding sheep. So much about Christmas tradition is steeped in religion. What is recounted in the New Testament is that Christmas was known as the nativity or origin of Jesus, who it says was born in Bethlehem. His earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, were traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem to see Joseph's family. They stopped at an inn that had no available rooms and elected to stay in the stables when Jesus was born. Traditional thought is that three wise men came to visit them, but that number is actually unknown also. The Bible just says, wise men visited. Would you believe Christmas was actually banned in Boston from 1659 to 1681 due to the Puritans who believed people required strict rules to be religious, so any merrymaking was considered sinful? This would be the same group to execute witches later on the primary colors of christmas are red green and gold also with more religious overtones the red signifies the blood of jesus shed in crucifixion green was for jesus eternal life and gold one of the three gifts of the magi representing royalty Christmas trees came about by German Lutherans in the 16th century when Protestant reformer Martin Bucer placed one in the cathedral of Strasbourg in 1539. The tree an evergreen that does not lose its leaves was to represent an eternal Jesus. In the U.S., 25 to 30 million Christmas trees are sold from any of the approximate 15,000 tree farms. Trees have usually been grown from 4 to 15 years before they're sold. I can tell you from experience this is a big business for trucking companies as our company has hauled hundreds of loads of Christmas trees from primarily North Carolina, Oregon, and Washington. A whole book could have been written about the history of Santa Claus and evidently there were a few. According to folklore, Santa was a real monk by the name of St. Nicholas, born in Turkey about 280 years after Christ was born. Giving away all family riches, he journeyed the country helping poor and sick children. His reputation landed in America in the late 18th century in New York, where the Dutch honored the anniversary of the death of Senter Nicholas the Dutch way of saying St. Nicholas. The name was later Americanized to Santa Claus. The current image of Santa Claus being with a white beard and a red coat and white fur was invented here in the States in the 19th century, primarily from a Christmas poem written by a minister, Clement Clark Moore. The look was still not right until Coca-Cola decided to make him look jollier in 1931 and hired an illustrator, Hayden Sunblum, to depict him for their magazine ads. Then in 1942, they added a helper to Santa called Sprite Boy. Now you know where the name of their beverage, Sprite, came from in the early 60s. The poem, called An account of a visit from St. Nicholas is better known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. Santa is said to have a toy workshop at the North Pole complete with elf workers and a sleigh that is pulled by flying reindeer. It was in 1881 when a political cartoonist, Thomas Nast, drew up Santa from Moore's description. This is the general image of him throughout the world, known as Santa, St. Nick, father christmas and chris kringle one of the flying reindeers is rudolph the red-nosed reindeer he was created by robert may in 1939 at the urging of montgomery ward department store as a promotion to increase sales he invented the whole story folks it was then put to music by johnny merrick's rudolph was the youngest of santa's flying reindeers Bullied by the other reindeers due to his bright red nose, he is chosen by Santa to lead the sleigh one Christmas Eve to guide the sleigh in inclement weather. Now, I got the rest of this information from the internet, so you take it how you want it. It's reported that reindeer have specialized noses that warm cold air before it gets to their lungs. Under a thermal camera, Rudolph's nose really is red. I did not make that up, folks. Now, like me, you'd have to be older than dirt to recall. But does anybody remember the classic Hard Rock, Coco, and Joe animated cartoon brought to you in grainy black and white? I used to watch it on Garfield Goose and Friends with Fraser Thomas at Christmas time as a kid in the early 60s. How old were you when you found out it was actually created in 1951? Anyway, originally it was called Hard Rock, Coco, and Joe, the Three Little Dwarfs, something nobody could get by with now. It was a two-minute, 45-second song written by Stuart Hamblin about three of Santa's helpers who ride in a sleigh with him on Christmas Eve. For those who have never heard it, stop what you're doing right now and go watch it on YouTube. Hard Rock drives the sleigh and Coco navigates with the maps. They really have no need for Joe, but Santa loves the little bugger and takes him with him anyway. Every Christmas, Joe winds up with a snowball to the face. For the rest of you familiar with the tune, now try and get that chorus line out of your head. I'm Hard Rock. I'm Coco. I'm Joe. Aside from Oh Holy Night being one of my favorite Christmas songs, which I wrote about last year, another song you might want to check out is Come and Praise Him. Christmas Must Be Tonight. Originally written by the rock band by the name of the band in 1977, it was called Christmas Must Be Tonight. In my opinion, a better cover version was performed by Richie Furry, formerly of the bands Buffalo Springfield and Poco. Fury became an ordained minister and then recorded a song for a Southern rock Christmas album compilation, adding the come and praise him emphasis. It truly is a beautiful song. The refrain in the song includes the words, son of a carpenter. I found this a little extraordinary. Obviously, they are referencing Jesus being the son of Joseph, who was a carpenter. Unexpected due to the fact that Joseph is kind of a forgotten character. Mary being his second wife and the circumstances in which she became impregnated with Jesus. The much older Joseph was relegated to stepfather status and not mentioned again in the Bible after Jesus has turned 12. It is presumed Joseph must have died about that time. Hey, seasoned greetings from Hoffman Chiropractic Neurology, celebrating 30 years of practice. Dr. Hoffman specializes in general musculoskeletal conditions, neurology, sports injuries, acupuncture, electrodiagnostics, and comprehensive wellness management. Dr. Hoffman provides exceptional care for patients of all ages, from infants to elderly, from expectant moms to athletes. Dr. Hoffman's goal is to provide all patients a tailored treatment plan based on an extensive history, a thorough exam, and x-rays. Contact Hoffman Chiropractic Neurology for more information or to schedule It's 815-937-0446. Speaking of Christmas songs, did you know Brenda Lee was only 13 years old when she recorded Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree back in 1958? The song was written by Johnny Marks, but it didn't catch on until Brenda became famous in the 1960s, rising to number 14 that year as recently as 2022 it hit number three on the hot 100 one of the most popular christmas songs is jingle bells who hasn't sung jingle bells at christmas time the song is so embedded in mainstream media its first three notes alone are instantly recognizable the trouble with this is jingle bells was not written as a christmas song and it is surprising the woke snowflakes haven't had this song eviscerated jingle bells originally called one horse open sleigh was written by an american james lord pierpont in 1857 he was the son of a minister born in boston in 1822 he was considered somewhat of a free bird or fearless renegade or just a plain rogue He traveled all over the country working as a whaler, a Navy sailor, a gold miner, and a songwriter. His father was a prominent abolitionist, so James fought in the Civil War for the Confederacy. You know, I didn't always see eye to eye with my old man, but I can't imagine pulling off that stunt. Some of his songs were what was called bellicose Dixieland war anthems. He would marry a Georgia girl, Eliza Peirce, the daughter of Savannah Mayor Thomas Peirce. The couple had two children, and he would later desert them. There is much dispute as to where he wrote the song, the cities of Savannah and Medford, Massachusetts, laying claim to that honor. When it came to the inspiration for the song, it is thought it was conceived as a boastful James Dean-like tale and he was chasing high-speed thrills in the woods with a young lady by his side. He had hoped his exploits would make Miss Bright's spirits sparkle, his words, not mine, that night. Alas, they were traveling too fast and managed to tip the sleigh, which he and his most likely drunken friends laughed hysterically about. Shortly after the accident, they went to a tavern where they asked to use the piano there are three forgotten salacious verses which narrate the couple alone in the woods racing too fast and perhaps drunk it is certainly not material for a wholesome american classic christmas song yet there it is did you know sir henry cole from britain is considered to have sent the first christmas card he sent it to his grandmother in 1843 he had the lithograph hand-colored by a London illustrator before sending it. In 2001, it sold at an auction for $28,158, or about the same it costs to send cards to all your friends nowadays. Wow, you talk about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. The story was retold by Bruce Baron's father, a faint British cartoonist, and soldiers serving in the 1st Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Evidently, one bitter Christmas Eve night during World War I in 1914, along the Western Front in Belgium, German soldiers began singing Christmas carols. Upon closer inspection, the British noticed the Germans had lanterns and small fir trees decorated for the holiday. The British, not to be outdone, started singing carols on their own. Events of the two sides nervously greeted each other in no man's land, sharing cigarettes, whiskey, wine, and even a soccer game. This was not a sanctioned ceasefire, but a spontaneous event. As Barron's father related, not an atom of hate on either side. A then 25-year-old soldier at the time was incensed at the ceasefire. His name? Adolf Hitler. The day after Christmas, they got back to killing each other. Fifteen million people died as a result of this war, folks. This story appeared in the diaries of several men that were there, though, that Christmas. I took this last paragraph directly from the History Channel, if you are interested in more information. Today, a memorial stands in England's National Memorial Arboretum commemorating the Christmas Truce. It was dedicated by Prince William of England. On the 100th anniversary in 2014, the English and German national soccer teams staged a friendly match in England in remembrance. England won one nothing. Did you know A Christmas Carol is the most adapted story in film history? There are 135 versions of the tale written by Charles Dickens. There were 6,000 original printings of the book, and they sold out in four days. There is only one known original copy left that is known about. It was reprinted 13 times the year it came out. Dickens performed the first recording of his tale in Birmingham, England in 1853, drawing a crowd of 2,000 people. He would continue reading and performing it for the next 17 years. Sadly... Tiny Tim was a real person. Dickens' nephew, Harry, who died of TB at the age of nine. It is assumed that Tiny Tim had TB. Speaking of successful books, did you remember to order your copy of my novel, Roll Me Away in Time as a Stocking Stuffer? The last-minute gift? The book makes a great gift for the reader in your family, and I think they really are going to like it. You can order at www.allentweber.com. It's two B's and Weber. Don't miss out. Hey, this podcast is brought to you by Jeff and Brandon Chiro at Core Street Ford, now in their 40th year servicing the Kankakee County area. Stop by their showroom at 558 William Latham Drive in Bourbon, You can save up to $6,000 on a selection of Ford 150 pickups. Core Street Ford is open from Monday through Saturday, offering new car and truck sales, pre-owned autos, and vehicle servicing. You can call them at 815-348-7024 or check out their website at www.courtstreetford.com. The Core Street Ford Group wishes everyone and their family Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And now my most recent commentary. This past Sunday, my wife and I attended what might have been my 15th trip to see the Nutcracker. At this matinee, the stars of the show, at least to this grandpa, were two of our five granddaughters, Ruby and London. Some of you may differ on the stars of the show, but as, as this is my podcast, I get to do the gushing. The play is shown every two years in Kankakee, and we have had the delight over the past decades of watching two daughters and four granddaughters star in this production. It occurred to me how little I knew about the story of The Nutcracker, and I bet my daughters and granddaughters have even less knowledge. I wish I'd wrote this before I went to the show. So let me regale you this Christmas season with the rich history of this ballet. Most people know The Nutcracker is a musical written by Tchaikovsky the Russian composer in 1892, and little else. In fact, Tchaikovsky only wrote the music about nine months before the ballet, which was choreographed by Marius Petipa. The original story, named *The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, was written by E.T.A. Hoffmann in Germany in 1816. His version was considered dark and disturbing and even creepy. I read the plot for the Hoffman's Tale, and he could put Stephen King to shame. The ballet was unsuccessful initially, though Tchaikovsky's music, which his debuted before the ballet, was considered a classic score. Tchaikovsky, however, was unimpressed with the music he produced for it. In a letter to his employer, he complained the awareness that things are not going well torments me and agonizes me to tears to the point of sickness. As we now know, it would become a classic. Through years of adaptations, the ballet and its music have become a Christmas staple. In Hoffman's version, the main character is named Marie. The name changed to Clara when Alexander Dumas, Count of Monte Cristo fame, lightened the story in his 1844 adaptation it was the Dumas adaptation of which Tchaikovsky wrote the musical score now would you believe viewers of the original ballet complained there were too many children in the show worse due to portrayals of certain cultures the present-day ballet is considered racist by the woke media Anyway, nitpickers aside, a Christmas Eve party at Clara's home includes her godfather, Drosselmeyer, who has brought gifts. This includes four lifelike dolls who will come to life and then dance superbly. Always a favorite part of the show. My cousin Heather once was one of those dolls. Drosselmeyer also brought a nutcracker for Clara, which becomes her favorite toy. Later that night in a dream, the Nutcracker will come to life to help Clara fight off the mice being unleashed by the evil Mouse King, who turns out to be the very Drosselmeyer himself. I'll have you know Weber girls have been soldiers fighting off these mice for over a decade. At this show, it was my six-year-old granddaughter, London, who bravely kept those mice at bay before making her exit stage right, banging on her little drum. In Christmases past, both my daughter Becky and then later her daughter Kaya heroically fought off those infernal mice as well. During the battle, Clara throws her slipper at the villain, allowing the Nutcracker a chance to stab the Mouse King. After the mice are vanquished, the Nutcracker transforms into a handsome prince. What else? and he and Clara travel to a moonlit pine forest where various sizes of snowflakes prance to a waltz. Our daughter Sarah was once one of those snowflakes prancing to the waltz, among many other roles through the years. Those two retreat to his kingdom as Act One ends. In Act Two, Clara and, and Old Handsome himself travels to the land of sweets ruled by the plum fairy. The prince informs the fairy how Clara saved him, causing a celebration of sweets from around the world. They all dance for the couple, including the famed Russian dance, of which my granddaughter Ruby nailed her performance. She was also a Spanish dancer in the show. It is at this celebration we see Mother Ginger make her appearance, a large woman with a giant hoop skirt with children in her knees, emerging as bonbons and red tights to perform another waltz. My niece Tammy was once a bonbon. Kudos to Amy Morrison's staff, the owner of the Paula Aubrey School of Dance, whom I saw when she herself might have been a little wee bonbon. It's quite a production, folks, and you would do well to check it out. Now, usually, folks, I end my podcast right after this commentary, but since this is a special Christmas podcast, I have something in mind for you that is much more important than my ramblings. The story goes that in 1891, Captain Joseph McPhee was worried there were so many poor individuals in San Francisco going hungry. He decided during the holiday he would try to feed them a Christmas dinner, but he had no way to fund the project. My understanding is he thought about it a lot to the point it was keeping him up at night. There were thousands to feed in the city, and he didn't know what he could do. He recalled that as a sailor in Liverpool, England, when the boats came back into port, there was usually a large iron kettle called Simpson's Pot so that folks could slip a coin or two in for the poor. The following day, he placed the kettle at the Oakland Ferry Landing, right at the foot of Market Street in San Francisco. He had a sign that said, Keep the Pot Boiling. He collected enough coins to feed the folks a Christmas dinner that year. Within six years, the kettle had gone from Oakland to Boston, buying 150,000 dinners for the needy. Of course, I'm talking about the Catherine McPhee from the Salvation Army with their red kettles. Those kettles are now spread out across the world, folks, and I urge you, if you're able, to give generously to this fine tradition. That's all I got, folks. If you like this podcast, please tell others. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, please tell me. I could always use more sponsors. Check out my blog at www.weberswhippingpost.com. Thanks a million for listening. Bye now and Merry Christmas.